Turn with me then in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and Psalm number 2. Uh, my memory is not very good, but I think the last time I had the privilege of preaching here, we pre- uh, I preached Psalm 1. I think that's right, isn't it? And uh, if you haven't watched or heard that sermon, you can find it on our YouTube channel, uh, because together, Psalm 1 and 2, go, they go together. They are like peas in a pod. They really do frame the whole Psalter. They are considered to be the introduction um, to the entire book of Psalms. And so together they give us um, a really good grasp of the whole book. So having done Psalm 1 last time, I thought it'd be good to do Psalm 2 this time. So what's Psalm 2 all about? Let's, uh, let's read it. Let's read it. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, Psalm 2 is a political psalm. Acts 4 tells us that it's written by a king called David. And it's about his kingdom versus the rival kingdoms in the world. The the kingdom of Israel versus all the other kingdoms around. It's really political. It's about a nationalist supremacy, if you like. Thankfully, the editor of the Psalms, God the Holy Spirit... And the New Testament tell us that it's about a lot more than just that. Psalm 2 is about God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, how can we say that so confidently? Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament more than nine times. Now, how many of those times do you think it's referring to the Lord Jesus? Nine times. Every single time. Every single time that the New Testament refers to Psalm 2, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. And you can see that, can't you, as you you read through, that the Lord is tied to his anointed or his Christ all the way through the psalm. You've got it in verses 2, 6 and 7, verses 11 and 12, it's all over. It's all about the Father lifting up his Son, the Lord Jesus, making him the King of everything and everyone. 
And that concept is true always. The father lifting up his son to be the king is true in eternity. The father has always honoured and lifted up his son as the king. You have that in, um, I'll just read this verse to you, Proverbs 8, verse 23 says, uh, where the son is speaking, he says, I have been enthroned from everlasting, from the beginning, before there ever was an earth. He was enthroned by God the Father. It's true in his incarnation when he came in the flesh to earn the kingdom of God. It is true in the resurrection when he was raised from the dead, victorious over every enemy, even the last enemy, death. It's true in his ascension. The Father raised him above everything and everything was literally put under his feet. And it's true on the last day when the Father will lift up his Son And sit him down once for all, finally and totally and forever on the throne of everything. So this psalm is really unfathomably deep, isn't it? And it can be studied from all of those directions and more. So we're just going to have to fly through it today. Let's start with verses 1 to 3. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Where we are introduced, firstly, to a group of opponents. Some opponents to the kingdom of Jesus. Who are they? We've got some nations, the kings, and the rulers. The kings, rulers, and nations of the earth are dead set against the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. Do you think that's easy to see today? In law and culture and all sorts of things. You turn on the telly, what you see. Nations, kings and rulers against all that the Lord Jesus says is good and right and righteous and holy and so forth. Everything contrary to the will of Christ the King. You see, in his kingdom, he says, do not commit adultery. But be faithful to your husband, to your wife. But we say in our kingdoms and our nations... You shouldn't deny yourself that privilege. You can sleep with whoever you like. He says, don't kill anyone. Don't murder. Respect the sanctity of life. We say, well, you know, if you're old enough, or if you're young enough, maybe we can just euthanize you, or we can abort you. He says, do not commit usury. Don't uh, rip people off. We live in nations where that's enabled and encouraged even. He says, you shall worship no one but me. And we will worship anything and anyone else. And there are countries in this world where it is against the law to worship the King, Jesus. So is Psalm 2 about a big bad world versus Jesus? Unfortunately, You and I aren't going to get off that lightly. Because if you look there in verse 2, there are more than just kings and nations in the crosshairs. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? We are all dead set against the kingdom of Jesus Christ, preferring instead our own authority. Am I right? Psalm 14 says that God looks down from heaven upon the earth to see all the children of men. And he says, is there anyone here who does good? 
Is there anyone here who seeks me? And he finds nobody. No, not one. From the greatest to the least. From the most moral and upright and respectable person to the most depraved and crooked person on the earth, we are all insistent that we should be the unquestionable kings and queens of me land. Aren't we? So we see it on the news, don't we? We see the nations, kings and rulers against the Lord Jesus, but we don't have to just stop there. We can look inside our hearts and find there is where we find all of our defilement. Out of the heart spring all of these sins that are contrary to Christ and his rule. We can see it in our home, the way we treat one another, in our families. We can see it in our internet search history, who really is in control of our lives. We can see it in our bank accounts and who, who tells us what we can do with our money. We see it in the list of people that we're estranged from and no longer talk to. We see it in our use of time, even our dreams and aspirations. Who calls the shots? In our lives. There are so many ways in which we can rebel against the authority of the King, the Lord Jesus. We consider ourselves sovereign over our own money, our own time, it's my body, it's my identity, it's my sexuality, it's my hobbies, it's my passions, whatever you like. We like to think it's all ours. And that I am in control of it. I am autonomous over it. It's up to me. So what do we say at that point? As we're rebelling against the Lord Jesus and what he says about our lives, we say in verse 3, let's break their bonds in pieces and let's cast their cords from us. Let's break these chains. Let's cut off these ties. Let's free ourselves from God and from his Christ. What are bonds and cords? What are the chains and the shackles of the Lord Jesus? You see, they, the enemies in Psalm 2, which includes you and me, I believe, they mean to call Jesus a tyrant slave driver. But what does the Lord Jesus say about his burdens and chains and ties? The King of Kings, Jesus, says, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. He says to his people, I drew them with gentle cords, he says in the prophets. I drew them with bands of love. The Lord Jesus, in ruling over us, wants to tie us to himself with chains of love. A bit like how a mother would tie her baby to her with those, I don't know how they even work, those swaddling things. You know, it's just, it looks like loads and loads of ropes all around them. And they just tie the baby to them. That's how the Lord Jesus would carry us. He says in the book of Isaiah that he would tie us to him as a mother carries her child. He wants to make us permanent members of his perfect, peaceful, endless kingdom. 
But Psalm 2 says we don't want his peace. We want to break off these bands of love. We want freedom from his love, preferring instead what? We prefer over the freedom that the Lord Jesus would give us, slavery to sin. John 8 says Jesus is there and he says, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. And so we find ourselves in Psalm 2, these enemies kicking against the kingdom of Jesus, we're like addicts trying to kick rehab. We're like patients, terminally ill patients trying to refuse treatment. Now my sister got married a week or two ago, and uh, there were lots of funny stories rolling around about her, so I've got one few here to illustrate this point. My sister, when she was little, was not sleeping. She was unwell. She had a temperature. And uh, what do you do when you've got a little child that's not sleeping and is unwell with a temperature? You get them to take Calpol or another paracetamol suspension. And uh, she wasn't taking it. She wouldn't have it. Uh, Such was her willpower. She wouldn't take this, which would make her feel better. But my father did manage to just about get that spoon into her mouth with the Calpol, with the medicine to make her feel better, that would make things better. Be good for her. And he manages to get that spoon in, and when he pulls it out, out comes the cowpaw, all over her mouth and out of her teeth. She pushes it out of her mouth. She just will not have it. The greatest disobedience that we have against the rule of King Jesus is a refusal, a simple refusal to take him, to carry his light burden. To be tied up by his bands of love. To be tied to him forever. The worst disobedience is not immorality, not murder, not greed, or any of that long list that we mentioned. The worst disobedience is a refusal, verses 11 and 12, to be reconciled to him. He wants to love us. But in the words of one of his parables, we will not have this man to rule over us. Why do you think this psalm begins with the word why? I don't know if you've ever watched Star Trek. That's something that I'd like to when I was little. There's uh, the insurmountable baddies on Star Trek are called the Borg. And if you bump into the Borg during an episode of Star Trek, you'll hear their slogan, resistance is futile. And when you read verses 4 to 6 of this psalm, you realize that is why the psalm starts with why. Why do the nations rage? Why do you bother? Why do you fight against the Lord Jesus? He is the king and resistance is futile. The psalmist says that the Lord laughs at the thought, let alone the attempt to resist the kingdom of Jesus over our lives. You see, the nations rage And we wrestle as much as we can against his authority in our lives, but it's all futile. You know, even when we joined forces with one another, do you remember? And we joined forces with the evil one, Satan. And we held hands with all of the powers of evil in this world. And we succeeded in killing him. We killed the prince of life. 
We buried in the ground the king of the universe. We actually did it. We won. We beat him. We killed him. We put him in the ground, dead and buried. And the father laughed. He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He raised him from the dead to everlasting life. And he seated him in endless session on the throne of the universe. Jesus still is the king. In Colossians it says that uh, the Lord Jesus made a public spectacle. Of all of the principalities and powers in this world that would rival his kingdom. Triumphing over all of them in his cross. And here we are today, still trying to stop his claim on all those tiny little areas of our lives. When he was raised from the dead and seated above all principality and power forever. And we still think we can resist him. No wonder the Lord laughs. But does the Lord laughing in verse 4 mean that it's light? And doesn't matter. Not at all. When you read verse 5, we see that the Lord is furious. The Father is angry because of our rebellion against the kingdom of his Son, who he loves and made the king of everything. Verse 12 says that we should kiss the Son unless he, that is the Father, be angry with us. God is angry. With you and with me for our resistance to the kingdom of his son. It is treason. So what's he going to do? What would you do? What's the worst thing that the father could do to us rebels? What is the penalty for treason against the king, the Lord Jesus? Well, in verse 6, the father confronts us with the reality that we've already lost. I don't know what it was like for you if you've been uh, saved, but that's what it was like for me. Before I knew the Lord Jesus as my Saviour and my King, I was fearful of the last day because I knew I had already lost. Do you realise that? That you have already lost? That God the Father says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and it's not you. There was a man called Stephen, uh, one, of the, one of the early Christians, and he was, uh, he was going around telling everyone that Jesus was raised from the dead and he is the king. And uh, he, was, uh, he, he called the attention of a man called Caiaphas. Caiaphas hated Stephen because of this gospel, that Jesus was the king. And uh, so he sentenced Stephen to death, essentially. And as Stephen was dying because of his testimony that Jesus is the king, the saviour of the world, as he was dying, he said... I can see Jesus on the throne, standing next to his father. Caiaphas had already lost. No, don't get it wrong. Jesus is the king. And the father hands us rebels over to his son, to whom all judgment is committed. In Psalm 8, if you turn over a couple of pages, it says this about the Lord Jesus. Talking to the father 
Uh, the psalmist says, you have made him, your son, a little lower than the angels in his incarnation. You have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, do you think it's about time that we heard from the king? All this uh, psalming and singing about the king and the father who sets the king on his throne. Let's hear from the king. Shall we in verses 7 to 9? Here's the king speaking. The limelight moves onto the son who reigns without equal and he says, the father has begotten me. Or you can translate that, the father has enthroned me. I don't know about you, but I find those verses so moving. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten or enthroned you. It's wonderfully intimate. It's isolated. It's far away from us. It's separate and private and full of love. It reminds me a little bit of what happened at Congress last week. Did you see that on the news? Uh, thousands of people looked like didn't it? massive crowds of people storming into the capital in the United States, uh, rioting, raging against what was going on inside. And despite all of that unrest outside, inside that locked room, law went on unhindered. And that's a little bit like what we're reading in Psalm 2. The whole world to which you and I belong, we're raging against the kingship of Jesus Christ in our lives, and yet there is this room which is locked and far away from us, in which the Father says, my son, the Lord Jesus, will be on the throne forever. Everything will be under his feet. I will give you everything. And there's nothing we can do about it. We're talking here about that day of unstoppable destiny where the son comes to the father and he's, where do we have that in verse 8 the son comes to the father and he asks him for something do you see that in verse 8 what does he ask the father for on that day he will ask the father for everything he will ask him for all of the world which is against him he will ask him for every single rebel. He will ask him for the United States and for Wales. He will ask him for Cardiff and every nation. He will ask him for you and your street that you live on and your house and everything in it. He will ask the Father for every enemy that was listed in, verse, in verses 1 and 2. He will ask him for you and your family and your children and your parents King Jesus will come to the Father and ask him for everything and everything shall become his. We shall all be put into his hands, his powerful, omnipotent, unrivaled hands for the purpose of his possession. Everything in this world that ever was or shall be will be put into his hand. He will possess it. It will be his because he is the king that the Father has put on the throne We'll be in his hands for the purpose of judgment. The rebels on that day, those who still resist his kingdom, will be shattered like a potter's vessel, smashed into thousands of pieces. That will be the bitter end of all those who resist Jesus' kingdom to the bitter end. 
When you consider how many people are here this morning and how many watch online, it's just unlikely to say that none of us will be there and none of us will be shattered. Why do you rage, he says? Why do you rage and resist the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It is futile. Now in verses 10 to 12, there's a pause. The song pauses for a conclusion. The song has come to its end in a way and now the psalmist is going to apply it it's a bit like an application for a sermon so let's do that shall we the great drama has been played out now that jesus christ is made the king by his father king now king forever king ultimately and we've heard from the two main characters the father who makes his son the king we've heard from the son who is made the king by the father And now the psalmist turns in verses 10 to 12 to address the enemies that have come up at the beginning of the psalm. And he has some advice for them. What's his advice? Do you see it? Be smart. Be wise. Give up. Is his advice? Give up. Stop resisting the kingdom of Jesus in your life. Accept the fact that he decides what is right and wrong. Accept the fact that he is the king. That he decides what you do with your life. Accept that fact. Call him my king, my saviour. You know, he is willing uh, to fight us if you want it, but, uh, but you will lose. And so the psalmist says, give up. I'm reminded at this point about a testimony that I heard um, from a young man during a conference a number of years ago. And uh, it struck me and it stuck with me. So let me tell you this man's testimony. He said he was a fighter. He was a young man. He must have been in his late 20s. And uh, he he said he was a fighter. He would fight anyone uh, at any time. He'd got in trouble with the police a lot and he was bruised and battered and scarred and all sorts. He had missing teeth, so I believed him. And he said he was good at it. He used to fight anyone and he would beat them all. And then one day he met the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus wrestled with this man. And he met with him and he demanded that he bow the knee that he call him the king, that he confess his sin, that he receive from him the forgiveness of sins, a crowning glory, bands of love, chains of peace, and he wrestled with him. This young man said that he wrestled with him until he read these words from Revelation 19. This is what this fighter read. He read, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a white robe dripping with blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the army is in heaven. Clothed in fine linen and white and clean followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And do you know what this young man said? I can't beat that. I can't fight him and win. He broke down. 
He called him the Lord. He called him the Saviour. He called him his King. Okay, so the psalmist in Psalm 2 says that we are the enemies and we're destined for destruction and so that we should just give up. We've talked about what happens to those who don't give up. They're smashed into pieces. What happens to those who do? What if I do give in? What if I do kiss the son? What if I do name him as my saviour and my king? Am I putting my head on the block? Just taking the execution? Do I become a Christian? And spend the rest of my life under the hegemony of King Jesus? Am I just going to be overpowered now into a long, laborious life of dusty religion? The enemies of verse 2, you and me, are given a sight of our end in verses 8 and 9. Then we're graciously warned in verse 10. And in verse 12, we are offered reconciliation. And he says at the end, blessed are those who put all their trust in him. Happy. Happy. When we, enemies of the King, Lord Jesus, because of our sin and our addiction to our own authority, when we kiss the Son, what happens? We're not just made forgiven. We're not just all of our sins wiped away as if we were completely guiltless and never did any of those things wrong. We're not just spared the death that we earned. We are made happy, happy, willing subjects in his endless, peaceful kingdom, tied up forevermore in bands of love and peace and joy. Is that all? We get to live the rest of our lives now with this wonderful king of righteousness and peace and love. We get to live a life where we know that everything works together for our good. And then, we rebels are made princes and princesses in his kingdom. We are made even co-heirs of the throne of glory with Christ Jesus. Does that blow you away? That we rebels who are opposed to him in every possible way, when we simply give up and call him our king, it's not just forgiveness. It's not just living alive and spared death. It's made co-heirs of his kingdom with him. We are made one with him as he is one with his father. What a glory. Those of us who stop resisting and kiss the Son are made happy. Happy lives with the Lord Jesus. And as it happens, it's in the cross and in the resurrection where this is most significant for us. We've said already that in the resurrection, we see that we cannot resist this kingdom. We cannot resist his power. He will rule over us rebels. And he will accept no sin. And in the cross, we see that we cannot resist 
his bonds and his chains and his cords of love. He will love us rebels. He will. And we can't stop him. While we were still rebels, raging against his kingdom, Christ died for us. This is the king of Psalm 2. This is the king that you and I are confronted with today. He will rule us, tolerating no sin. And he offers to love us. To love us like nobody else has ever or can ever love you. Earth and heaven worship you. Love eternal, faithful and true. Who bought the nation's ransomed souls. Who brought this sinner near to your throne. All within me cries out with praise. Your majesty, I can but bow. I lay my all before you now. In royal robes I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. I'm closing here now by asking you, who is your king? Is it Jesus or is it you? Some of us have never kissed the sun. We are still anticipating nothing else but his judgment to be smashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 says you must stop, give up, turn away from that, kiss the son, bend the knee, call him king and saviour and receive from him the forgiveness of all of your sins, a home in glory, a crown. But the rest of us would say that we are already citizens of his kingdom. We say that we have kissed his son, we are Christians, Jesus Christ is our king. And to you I ask, does it show? Do you think that somebody else looking into your life from the outside could tell that your life is under the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Does your life look like one where Jesus is the unrivaled despot? In every area of your life, does his rule and will matter? The use of your money, how you treat your wife, how you raise your children, how you use your goods, what you do with your car and your time, everything. Even as, well, especially as Christians, we must kiss the sun every day. Every day confess our rebellion to him, receive the forgiveness of our sins. Every day war against the flesh and put it down. Every day call him king of my life and bring more and more and more and more of my life under his control, sacrifice to him, presenting to him our bodies and our minds as a sacrifice to him who is our king, who loves us and gave himself for us so that he could tie himself to us forever. Let me just read um, some words from the book of Philippians before I very quickly pray and then we'll sing again. These words come from Philippians and chapter 2. 
It's talking about that last, that great day. It says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, is your King. And you have set him over everything and everyone. There is nothing that is outside of his power and authority. And Lord, we confess that there are so many ways in which we have rivaled that and tried to stand against that and tried to claim uh, power and authority over things ourselves. We ask for your forgiveness Lord, and to be restored to you, to be reconciled to you by kissing the Son. Lord, grant us repentance and faith, we pray, that we should throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus and receive from him the forgiveness of all of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the gracious mercy that you have to give us in Christ, that by his death on the cross, we have all of our sins wiped away and we are grafted into his kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for the peace, the prosperity, the joy that it is to be citizens of his kingdom. That it is no chore, that it is no uh, awful time where we are constantly reminded of what we have lost. But, Lord, that we are constantly reminded by what we have gained by entering into his kingdom. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and for life everlasting and glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.